My name is Bill Mallow, and I'm an elder in the Christ Community Church, and I'm going to read this morning's text for uh, Pastor Paul's sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'd like you to turn there with me, page uh, 809 in your, in the Bible that is in the seat in front of you, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Please uh, Think on these words for a moment. Preparation for the sermon. How are human beings supposed to behave? I mean, is there like a universal code, you know, that everybody should sort of adhere to? Is there some kind of standard, some kind of norm that when you get into a group of people, you just sort of assume everybody understands how to behave here? What's the, what's the code of conduct? What's right? What's wrong? How do you determine what's right and what's wrong? If you were to go to the Supreme Court today, where they, they're the ultimate body here in America of trying to determine what's, what's right, what's wrong, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves as a nation, 
you'd see the nine chairs and the places of the justice's seat. But on the north and south wall, they have this uh, long piece of artwork. And the artwork's called a frieze. It's a, it's a long, it's 40 feet long, and it's about seven feet high. And in the frieze are sculptured people, these marble people. And they're all people from history that had some kind of connection to the law. And so Hammurabi, some depiction of him is up there. Uh, Moses, there's a picture of him up there. Confucius, Muhammad, Solomon. There's 18 different people in history. And it, it gives the feeling like uh, there's, they're, they're peering down on the judges. So as they're trying to decide, it's like all of these people from history, including these nine, are trying to decide, well, what, how is it are we supposed to behave? How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? And what frequently happens is people have that question. Over time, you may have had that question, and you say, well, let's just turn to the Bible. There's a great teacher, even if we don't believe he's the Son of God. His name is Jesus, and he gave certain ethical teachings. And let's just go and see what he says. What does Jesus say about human behavior? How, are, how is he expecting all people to behave? And if you had that particular question, then you would turn to the Sermon on the Mount. That's the where, where you would go. That's like a blueprint, an ethical blueprint on how he expects people to behave. John Stott, who has written a great commentary on the, this particular passage of uh, Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he calls it the nearest thing to Jesus' manifesto. So... The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Manifesto. I like that. It's Jesus' Manifesto. It's, it's, if you're trying to figure out what Jesus would say, again, whether you believe him or not, just how he would live, like you might uh, go back to one of these 18 figures and ask, well, how would you say we should live? If you come to ask that question of Jesus, you're going to turn to the Manifesto. You're going to turn to the Sermon on the Mount. But unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is people come to the Bible, and that's really the only question they're asking. They're just asking an ethical question. They're just asking a conduct question. I need somebody who seems smarter or wiser or more connected to God to tell me how I should conduct my affairs or how I should expect other people to conduct themselves or behave. And and if you come... You can sort of just boil down Christianity and say, really, Christianity is nothing more than just behaving correctly. It's just doing what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So, so the Sermon on the Mount just gets reduced down to something like a Boy Scout law. I don't know if we have any scouts here today. But there's a Boy Scout law. If you're a Boy Scout, you memorize uh, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. That's what a Boy Scout is. Well, what's a Christian? Well, you just turn to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You do those things. That's a Christian. And, of course, we'll see that this teaching that Jesus has here in the Sermon on the Mount is, is far more radical than just a code of conduct. We spent several weeks coming towards, making our strides towards the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember my illustration, it's been like a pole vaulter. We, we've had to get some momentum before we reach the, you know, the place that we're going to vault over the bar. 
and it, the, the, the pole vaulter puts his pole in what's called a plant box. It's sort of that tapering box that you stick your pole in, and then you sort of vault yourself up. And the plant box of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. It's sort of the foundation. You've got you've to stick that foundation before you begin to propel yourself towards the Sermon on the Mount. So that's how we're going to look at this uh, particular sermon today. But I want to do it this way. I, I want to help us understand the plant box by looking at the whole. So I want to take sort of a 30,000-foot, very quick view of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5, verse 13 to the end of chapter 7 and just say, this is the ethical teaching. This is the behavioral teaching that Jesus is going to have for us and we should anticipate and we should be in store for. And then I want us to back up. Once we've seen the behavior, then I want us to back up and understand the beliefs or the Beatitudes, or the, the heart set of the believer. Does that make sense? So we're going we're gonna to go forward and look at the ethical landscape, how we're supposed to, to behave, and then we're going to see the necessity to back up and say, well, what do we believe before we act on our behavior? All right, so let's start with that behavior. Uh, we're we're going to examine the, Jesus' manifesto with a lot more specificity, but we're just going to have five or six points here that's like flyover, 30,000 foot, foot view. We're, we're going to attack the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm just going to point out a few markers here, and we're going to go quickly. And as we sort of run through these things, you can just do sort of a quick self-evaluation. Quick study of yourself. Okay, these are kind of some of the main behaviors that I should be exhibiting if I'm a follower of Christ. You know, how am I doing? First of all, the follower of Christ has a particular relationship to the world. You'll see that in chapter 5, 13 through 16. And that relationship is described as salt and light. So every believer of Christ, every follower of Christ is, is intended, is supposed to, is expected to have a certain kind of relationship to the world, and that's like, a, like salt or light. And one thing that salt and light have in common is that they both expend themselves. Both expend themselves. In the New Testament, salt wasn't primarily used for taste. It was primarily to prevent decay. So salt sees something decaying and attaches itself to it to preserve it light extends out from its source into dark places it's expending itself it's giving itself and so just like salt and light the christian is supposed to attach itself to decay to shine into dark places when you see relational decay when you see community decay, when you see economic decay, when you see racial decay, you, you see any kind of decay, you, you're not running away, you're running in. The, the Christian is looking at the darkness and saying, I've got to go in there. I've got to get in there. The Christian is looking at the decay of, of, a, of a family or a relationship or a community or any kind of decay you might say and say, I see it and I've got to move forward. I've got to attach myself to the decay and prevent decay. So the Christian is always moving forward into darkness, moving forward into decay and expending ourselves, our, our emotions, our talents, our resources for the sake of other people. 
Never hoarding, never kind of gathering in, always saying, where are dark places? Where's decay and how can I expend myself? Secondly, anger, chapter 5, 21 through 26. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, crimes of passion. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of television. Maybe they use it on those law shows. That was a crime of passion. And a crime of passion is different than premeditated. Premeditated is obviously you've been thinking about it and then you act on it. A crime of passion is something happens and you have sudden anger, heartbreak, whatever it is, and you just act out of that crime of passion. A lot of times it's used in terms of murder. I just, something happened and I reacted. I and I hurt somebody. It was a crime of passion. I wasn't thinking about it. Just this event caused me uh, to have this sudden anger. And Jesus understands the heart of the human being. And he understands crimes of passion can lead to murder. And the seeds of those crimes of passion start in the human heart. And so he's going to address that. And basically, he's going to say, not not only should you not murder, of course you shouldn't murder, but he's expanding the definition to say, no verbal crimes of passion. See, because verbal crimes of passion start in your heart and then spill out, and if they're not contained in some way, it could actually hurt someone else in another way. So, So no verbal crimes of passion. And he says, so for instance, you shouldn't call your brother a fool, which is... Oh, uh, the way of saying somebody's not smart, they're empty-headed, you're a moron, you're a loser, you're an idiot. That's a crime of passion. And I just want to detail here just one little verse, Jesus' strong warning against people who commit verbal crimes of passion. Not physical crimes of passion, just verbal crimes of passion even if the other person can't hear you saying it. You will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, okay, got to watch my tongue here. Integrity, number three, chapter 5, 27 through 37. Integrity, if you're a math nerd, that might have been a crime of passion right there. Um if you're a math person, what's, what does integer mean? Integer is a whole number. So Jesus is saying that the follower of Christ is going to be a whole person. They're going to have integrity. And then he gives different examples, three particular examples, how you're not divided. You're never two-faced. You're, 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 you're a whole person. And you have sexual integrity. You have marriage integrity. You have verbal integrity. And we'll cover these with greater detail, but you have sexual integrity. In other words, your mind and your body, your your heart, they all go together. So so you're not going to have sex with somebody mentally, and you're not going to have sex with somebody physically unless your whole body, all of you are invested in that person. And the Bible calls that marriage. That's when you know somebody's completely committed. And at that point, then you do have sex with that person because it's a great thing. But if you have sex mentally or physically apart from marriage, you're, you're divided. You're not whole. You've separated yourself out in some kind of compartment that God never intended for that to happen. And then you have marriage integrity. 
When you get married, you, you say, yes, I'm going to stay with this person for my entire life. And Christians stay together. They, they want their relationships to be whole. And, of course, verbal integrity. It goes on to say, my yes means yes and my, my no means no. In other words, if I ever say anything that comes out of my mouth, it corresponds to reality or the truth. I don't think something and then say a different thing. So if I ever say yes or I ever say no, whatever it is, could be big, could be a tiny little white lie to get yourself off the hook. I know nobody's done that, but the other person in the room that's done it besides me, you understand. You're mostly self-absorbed, so you you just don't quite get reality matched up with what you say just so you could look better or kind of escape some punishment. And the follower of Christ doesn't do that. Why? They're whole. There's no division in their mind and body and tongue. You're, you're whole if you follow Christ. Third, you're maybe fourth, I think. This your relationship to Jesus affects your relationship to the poor. Chapter 6, 1 through 4. If you're following Jesus, just notice Jesus assumes you will have a relationship with the poor. That part isn't optional. What he's concerned about is how you have that relationship, not whether you have the relationship. And he, he, he says, he describes how your involvement, it's a very kind of strange phrase. He says, when you give, not if, but when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What, I mean, what does that mean? I'm, I'm giving to the poor and I'm going to give with my left hand, but I'm going to put my right hand behind me. I mean, what, how does that really work? And what Jesus means by that is uh, you shouldn't get congratulated for it. And he primarily means it because he's talking about your right and left hand is that you shouldn't congratulate yourself. So as you're giving, you're not, yes. So you're never condescending to the poor. Why? Because you're poor. So you never give down. You never give and start patting yourself on the back. You're going to have a relationship with the poor, but you won't want them to think that you're treating them any differently than anybody else you'd ever encounter. You have a different attitude towards money. Chapter 6, 19 through 24. In 19, 20, 19 through 24, Jesus basically says, show me the money. You show me the money, I'll show you your master. That's essentially what he says here. He's, he's basically going to unpack it. If you have a hard time or you just can't seem to let go of 10% of God's money that he's given you, notice how I phrase that. Not your money that you give to God because you don't own anything. You're just a steward. You're holding on to stuff that's going to be handed to somebody else. It might go in a garage sale, might go in a will. But you don't own any of it. And so God's saying, I'm going to give you 100% of what you have and what I want you to do to make sure that your heart doesn't start beating for the stuff that I give you instead of beating for me. I want you to return 10% of it. And if you have a difficult time returning that 10%, then you have a different master. And probably for many of us, the master is our lifestyle. 
oh, I mean, I think it'd be great to give 10%, but, you know, my kids and my house and my car and my, yep, those things are more important. Those things actually rule your heart, but not with a follower of Christ. Follower of Christ is incredibly generous because somebody's been incredibly generous to you. It's not difficult to return money from somebody who's giving you 100% to give back a portion of it. Finally, this is the last little marker we'll see here, is your attitude towards your circumstances. Chapter 6, 25 through 34, don't be anxious. See, a follower of Christ has a different attitude towards the events of their life. There's going to be all kinds of events that you encounter, and Jesus is saying the follower of Christ is just not going to be anxious about those things. Here's how one commentator put it. Anxiety and worry is a form of pride. You think you know how your life ought to go, and you like being in control, and you're worried that God's not going to get it right. Why are you worried if God's in control? Well, you're worried he's not going to do what you want, or he's not going to get it right. So I've got to worry about it. But, but a follower of Christ understands the sovereign God's in control. And so I, I might be frustrated. I can be disappointed. I can be excited. I'm not anxious. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. Okay, so that's, that's, just, that's just six things. That's flyover. We could have done six different ones. How are you feeling? You pretty much checked every box. You're a follower of Christ. Yep, yeah. It, well, that's not news to me, Paul. I'm just doing all those things. Let's just wrap this up. I'm expending myself towards other people who are decaying. I'm never exploding in verbal crime. I live a life of integrity, whether that's sexually, marriage, or verbally. I have an active relationship with the poor. I'm not patting myself on the back while I do it. As far as money goes, I give and then live. I don't live and then give. And, and I know God is control, so I'm not biting my nails. I'm not tapping my foot. I'm not anxious. See, my guess is if you do a quick evaluation, you get a little depressed. I mean, if you're self-aware, you go, I'm not checking many of those boxes. And even the ones I sort of put half a check mark in, I'm just not doing too well. Because if you come to the Bible first looking for behavior, you're going to be depressed. If you just say, I just would like to know how to live my life, and you just come and say, well, show me the behavior, I think you would come away just being depressed or just saying it's impossible or just saying what Jesus said is insane. Which is exactly what some students concluded. There was a very interesting experiment that a woman named Virginia Stems Owen, she's a professor at Texas A&M and an author, And she does an English class, and she gave an assignment to her English class, and it was to read the Sermon on the Mount and write an essay. And many of the students were very unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the title, but they didn't really know what was contained in it. And most of them just had no idea what she was talking about at all. So they went home, they read the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7. They had to write an essay on it, and the universal response about it was, the universal response was, total dislike for the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you two examples that she got returned to her. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. 
Second, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, to be angry is compared to murder. That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I've ever heard. Now, here was Stem's conclusion. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was intended in the first century. It's intended when you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're disconnected from this king, to be offended. To say, it's impossible. It's insane. I couldn't possibly do that. If you think you could read the Sermon on the Mount and say, I'm pretty much checking every box, you've got a real problem. But when you really look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is what Jesus is asking, I want help from Sermon on the Mount. I need to be saved from the Sermon on the Mount. So we have to back up. We got to get on the plant box, right? We can't just say, I'm going to just get up to 18 or 20 feet. I got to go back to say, well, what have I planted myself in so I can have some possible trajectory to, to live this way? And that's the Beatitudes. You really have to understand the Beatitudes if you're going to have any hope of navigating the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to end here just looking briefly at the Beatitudes, and I want to think of it as the, the, the plant box isn't just the mindset, because the mindset can just be disconnected to the rest of the body. I want to think about it as this is your heart set. This is your whole mind, soul, spirit. Everything's planted right here. And, and when we look at the Beatitudes, this isn't like, eight different types of people who are in the kingdom of God. These are eight different kind of characteristics of everyone who's in the kingdom of God. And it's not an elitist group. It's not like, here's the special forces team. This is the expectation for anyone who's a follower of Christ. You've got to have these beatitudes as part of your foundation. So I want to put these in two different columns. There's eight, and I want to put four in the first column, and it describes our relationship to God. And then the last four in the second column describing our relationship towards each other, okay? So I want to make sure we all understand where we are. We've looked at behavior, and you should have looked at the behavior and said, I need help. I'm in desperate need of help. So you back up and you say, what are the beliefs? What are, what are the things that are my foundation? And there's eight of them, and you can divide them in lots of different ways. I just want to divide them very clearly into two columns, one about our relationship with God, one about our relationship with each other. First, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about this being the first stone in the path. This is the the door that opens to every other door. You have to get through this door before you can get to any other of the Beatitudes. And the poor in spirit's not referring to financial poverty. It's obviously referring to spiritual poverty. And so when you come to God, you recognize, I'm completely bankrupt. I look at my spiritual checkbook, and I have nothing. That's the first step every follower of Christ must take. And you know something about bankruptcy? It's just not that you're broke. What's bad about bankruptcy? You're broke and you owe people stuff. 
right? You can be broke and just say, I'm broke. But if you're bankrupt, when you add it up, you still have debts left over that you can't possibly pay. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. You've got to have that as your starting point. You're so spiritually bankrupt, you have things you can't possibly repay, so you need somebody to pay them for you. You can't behave this way, so you must have somebody who behaves this way for you. But here's what happens with some frequency, and probably has happened in in your own mind at different points. You kind of think of, well, I know there's a God, I'm, I'm... going to have some kind of face-to-face encounter however I might imagine that and I've got a bank account and I know I've got some debts I mean when I look at it, I know I've done some bad things I've made some misstatements I've really missed it on certain things but but I got another column and I'm I'm trying to add to that column and I'm trying to do a bunch of good things so that when I get up to heaven when they take out the accounting and they say we've got the good parts and we got the bad parts There's just some good left over, and I'm going to give it to God, and he's going to say, come into heaven. Nobody's going to have anything good to give to God. That's what the Bible says. See, the false narrative in our head is that somehow we can accumulate enough good things to get in, and that's not true. The Bible says there is no one who does good, and just to make sure you understand what that means, he says, no one. In case you missed it the first time, in case you didn't understand what no one meant, he says it means no one. There is nobody when you look at the account, you don't just have some good and some bad. You have all bad and you're completely bankrupt and you can't possibly pay it back. And when you say, okay, I'm in that condition, then you start looking for someone else to do something before you start doing something. Does that make sense? That is so critical. To understand that Jesus has, we just sang it, paid it all. Paid what? Paid all this debt that I owe. And it was costly. Every follower of Christ must enter through this narrow door of spiritual bankruptcy. If you don't enter through that door, you, there's no other door to get in. That's the starting point. I, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I can't possibly purchase God's favor. It has to be purchased for me. I can't possibly keep God's commands. They must be kept for me. We talk, talked about this last week when Jesus came and his sermon was repent, turn around. And you know you have to turn around from your sins and you have to turn around from your self-righteousness. Then the next three Beatitudes just flow, just like dominoes from this one. I mourn, I'm meek, and I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I, I mourn, I see my sin, and instead of loving my sin, I weep over my sin. I, I see my spiritual bankruptcy. I didn't see it. God's helped me see it. And I'm really sorry and sad about my sin. Psalm 119 Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for I have not obeyed your law. I'm deeply moved by my own sin. I'm sad about it. I'm meek. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, who does a great job in, in a series on the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, here's his test of meekness. See what you think. 
It may be easy for us to be honest about ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves as sinners. So I get before God, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've done that. I said that. I shouldn't have. But what happens when others point out your sin? Are we quick to condemn ourselves but resentful for others who point out things that we know are true? If you resent other people pointing out things that you or know are true, you're struggling on meekness. Meekness is an awareness that Jesus is in your picture. You see, so when somebody points it out, I know I'm not the only one in my picture, thank the Lord. I've got Jesus in my picture. So therefore, yes, I'm sad that you have accurately diagnosed me, but guess what? Jesus paid it all. So I can be meek. I don't have to be resentful. When people point out sin in my life, here's one thing I just try to do as a thought. Whether they're right or wrong, I think there's so many sins you don't know about that you could point out. So even if you're pointing out one that I don't even think exists, I could supply so many that do exist. So it causes me to not want to just be resentful immediately at the moment of a conversation. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not living for my kingdom anymore. Now I'm hungering after the kingdom of God. I've been accepted. And so I, I really understand I've been purchased by God. So now my heart set is to, to move towards, to, to uh, work out my salvation, to strive, to, to, to engage with anything I can in terms of going after the kingdom of God. All right, that's the first column. Now, here's the second column. second column has to do with our relationship with other people. I'm, now, because this first column is true, then this is what should, should just be your, your heart set for the, uh, the world. I'm, I'm merciful. This is not surprising. I'm running into relationships where there's bankruptcy, and instead of being angry, I'm going to be merciful. Why am I going to be merciful? God's run into me and said, you're, you're bankrupt. So when I run into the culture or run into a relationship that's bankrupt, I go, you know, I can be merciful. I can be merciful. I can lower my expectations. I can have a forgiving heart. And imagine if a whole group of people gathered together and one of their core characteristics was mercy. Wow. What an impact that could have. I'm pure in heart. It means I'm a whole person. I'm not divided between my kingdom and other kingdoms and God's kingdom. I'm just in God's kingdom. So I'm living with integrity in all of my life sexually, verbally, in marriage. Third thing, I'm a peacemaker. See, when, when things break down or start decaying, I don't run away, I run in. Things are decaying relationally. Instead of me wanting to back out and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that relationship, I run in. Things are decaying in a neighborhood, in a community, in a city, between races, whatever it could be. Instead of backing out, I'm running in. I'm, I'm pure in heart. And then notice what it says. The pure in heart will be called what? Sons of God. Who runs into the darkest places? The Son of God. 
So if you want to be like God, you run into dark places. And when you run into dark places and you try to be a peacemaker and it doesn't work, you still take your stand and you say, I'll be willing to be persecuted for righteousness. See, even when the peacemaking breaks down, you still don't leave. You stay and say, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll be persecuted for righteousness. I'll be willing to still stand my ground for Jesus' sake. Now, here's how I want to conclude. Please notice that nothing I've described here, whether it's about beliefs or behavior, sounds any way attractive unless there's another kingdom. If you come to the the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, and you walk away saying, this is how I should live, the only way it sounds attractive is, is if there's an alternative kingdom. Because if this is the only kingdom, you're not going to do this. You're not going to want to do it. And even if you think you should do it, you're going to think it's going to mess up your kingdom. Because guess what? It is going to mess up your kingdom. I would rather not love my enemies. But the only way is if I think Another king is on the horizon and his kingdom is coming. And until that day, I'm going to stand and take my stand and look like this king. That's the only thing that's going to get you through. If you think this is your life, this is your kingdom, you have to grab for everything you can. You're never going to like the Sermon on the Mount. Never. But if there's an everlasting kingdom that truly is on the cusp, the sun is just about ready to break the horizon, then you can take your stand. So that's why you have to get that down. Do you believe Jesus' first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven, is at hand? It is breaking over the horizon. If it is, then I can let go of all of my kingdom dreams here. And follow the true king. If you can't, you're never. I don't want to dissuade you from coming back over the next couple of months. But you're going to be frustrated week after week. Because really you've come just to build your own kingdom. This is what it looks like. To serve another king. You come up to a king who has extended himself for you. He has attached himself to your decaying soul, and he's going to preserve it for eternity. If you trust in that king, run forward. If you don't, just ask yourself, what is it you've trusted in? Please, if you, if you think you're good enough, consider again. Consider again. Let's pray together. Lord, so much is happening right at this moment because so much got covered in this critical passage in Matthew and your critical teaching. And, and we all have some kind of false narratives 
that we've built up. And, it, and we just have both hands wrapped around those false narratives. It's very hard for us to let go of. We're really, many of us, really afraid that this kingdom that we see are, are 60 or 80 years. That's it. So it's hard for us to really trust in, in the kingdom that's at hand. hard for us to appreciate how the sacrifice here could of our lives could really redound to eternity for glory so we're afraid and so help your people encourage every soul who follows after you and, and arrest every person who has a thought with a false narrative That Jesus' disciples, they had their own false narrative of what the king was going to be like. So he took a cup and bread and said, I'm going to give my body. That's the kind of king that I am. Would you bless these common elements for an uncommon encounter with you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.